pleasure to uh, introduce to you uh, Dr. Carrie Lee, uh, who is one of two of the inaugural Endis uh, postdoctoral fellows. Her partner in crime, Seok Jun Kim, uh, will be uh, helping us uh, kick off the uh, uh, the spring 2017 uh, seminar series following uh, our colleague Sebastian Rosado, who's uh, going to uh, give the uh, the first seminar uh, uh, at the beginning of the, uh, the spring term. Uh, Kerry comes to us immediately uh, from the Rand Corporation uh, in Washington, D.C., where she was a Stanton uh, nuclear fellow. Uh, and for those of you who are unfamiliar with the uh, Stanton Foundation uh, nuclear program, they've given money uh, to a lot of uh, universities and think tanks, including, I think, in addition to RAND, the Council on Foreign Relations and a number of other uh, pretty prestigious groups. So uh, she comes uh, with a great background. For those of you who care about uh, academic uh, pedigree, she's a recent Stanford uh, PhD, not quite in the same cohort of uh, uh, our colleague uh, Nisha Fazal, but uh, following in that uh, great tradition. So um, Carrie's going to talk for about 35 minutes, um, and then we're going to open it up for Q&A. Uh, I'm going to keep the list, so if you want a, a you know, paper clip a $5 bill by your name on that seating chart, I can bump you up in the queue. Um, also, I'm going to do something that may seem a little strange, but I'm doing it because uh, Anika Johnson told me I've got to do it, which is I'll be repeating the questions into the microphone because this whole thing uh, is going to be podcast. So uh, without further ado, please join me in giving Carrie Lee a, a warm endless welcome. Uh, good afternoon. I'm really thrilled to be here and present a, a chapter of the book project that I'm working on, uh, which is a, a much larger project on the politics of military operations. Uh, the paper and the presentation today is going to focus on the case of South Vietnam, uh, where I look at both a statistical and historical case. So in January of 1968, North Vietnamese Army soldiers infiltrated south across the DMZ to besiege a small marine outpost in the northwest corner of South Vietnam called Khe San. With no way to break the offensive without, with no way to break the siege without a strategic large offensive designed to break through the Vietnamese army forces, President LBJ, um, Linda B. Johnson, decided to airlift supplies into the base in order to supply the and sustain the 5,000 Marines that were besieged there. Johnson was convinced that in the aftermath of the Tet Offensive and the emergence of a credibility gap between the government and the people, that he could not launch a new major offensive in order to liberate these besieged Marines. Why didn't he think that he could launch this offensive? Well, 1968 was an election year, and Johnson was in a very tough primary fight against anti-war challengers Eugene McCarthy and Robert F. Kennedy, brother of JFK. With the military asking for additional troops, a new offensive in order to liberate Quezon, and an increase in the strategic bombing campaign, despite evidence that it was failing, Johnston was frustrated and felt trapped. Confiding to his generals on March 26, 1968, 
All of this at Quezon is complicated by the fact that it's an election year. I don't give a damn about the election. I will be happy to just keep doing what is right and lose the election. I will have overwhelming disapproval of the polls. I will go down the drain. Five days later, Johnson announced on national television that he was withdrawing from the presidential uh, from the presidential race and would no longer be a choice in the November general election. That very same eve, the Air Force and Army in a joint operation called Operation Pegasus launched a new offensive in order to liberate the besieged Marines in Quezon. So this leads us to ask, do domestic political institutions alter the way that states fight wars? And if so, then when and why do civilians influence military operations during combat? I'm going to argue today that civilian leaders intervene in military operations in order to retain domestic political power. In democracies, this kind of influence and intervention is going to occur when public opinion becomes sufficiently important to an administration's survival so as to promote action. So, for example, during election cycles. As a result, we observe that democratic states fight wars very differently when their leaders are running for re-election than, than during normal months. Um, as an overview today, I'm going to go through a very brief literature review where this theory sits in uh, in the political science literature, go through the theory of a principal, a principal agent theory of operations, and then go through the case of South Vietnam where I test, uh, this, test this theory of electoral politics. So political science has a lot of theories about uh, the role of democracy in mitigating or exacerbating conflict. Uh, the most famous of this suggests that casualty sensitivity in democracies constrains leadership decision-making, also known as the democratic peace theory. Democracies are much less likely to go to war because they're responsible to their citizens, and citizens are typically dumbish. However, once they commit to war, democracies are more likely to commit additional resources and potentially be more aggressive during conflict because leaders are accountable to their citizens and they're much more likely to lose office after um, a failed conflict than an autocrat is. Additionally, elected officials may try to manipulate foreign policy in a couple of different ways immediately before an election, either to generate rally effects by initiating crises or by laying off and delaying announcements of increases in conflict, such as surges or, um, or additions of troops into theater until after an election. But in order to really understand the relationship between civilian decision-making and military operations on the battlefield, we have to then go look at the civil-military relations literature, which largely focuses on three questions. The first is, when and why does the military obey unarmed civilians? Um, the second is, what's the appropriate division of labor? So should we have civilian strategists and military operators? How involved should the military be in politics? How involved should politicians be in military operations? And then finally, how do the civil-military relations affect battlefield effectiveness? Are there consequences for how military performs in the battlefield, depending on the level of influence of politicians? This literature makes two large assumptions, however. The first is that civilian preferences are fixed and always reflect the national interest. The second is that civilians typically uh, do not interfere in military affairs at the operational and tactical levels of war. Huntington's normal theory of civil-military relations 
describes a, a world in which you have political strategists and grand strategists um, and civilians, and then military operators who take care of the details and what's necessary in order to accomplish the task that the politicians put in front of them. I'm arguing today, however, that these two assumptions are largely false. That in fact, civilian preferences do vary and vary dramatically according to electoral cycles and over time, and that politicians can and do influence military affairs at the operational and even tactical levels of war. Why do we have elections and democracies? Why is this important? Well, elections serve as monitoring and enforcement mechanisms in normal times in order to assure voters that politicians are doing the work of the country and that they're not shirking from their own responsibilities. This relies, however, on access to reliable information about the policies that are being pursued as well as accurate measures of progress uh, regarding these policies. In cases, however, where policy benefits manifest after the costs are incurred, uh, politicians may have incentives to manipulate their policies in order to appear more successful than they actually are. This, um, the landmark paper by Nordhaus in 1975 describes this in terms of inflation and unemployment, where politicians may manipulate the economy in order to make an unemployment rate look better than it actually is. In conflict, however, um, military strategy is a trade-off between these long-term successes and short-term costs, where success is ideally measured in a conventional battle in the amount of territory gained, um, versus in an asymmetric conflict, you're looking at kind of hearts and minds won or lost. Costs, however, are measured in casualty counts and the cost to the taxpayers in terms of human and financial capital. Therefore, public support for a war and, their, and additionally approval rating of the president prosecuting the war hinges on the probability of victory, which is the long-term probability, versus the short-term costs. In conflict, um, policies are often hidden, and so you don't get this reliable information about the policies being prosecuted or how well they're being done um, because policies are hidden in order to protect state secrets and national interests. Additionally, on the battlefield, progress is really difficult to communicate to voters in one, um, because pro progress is largely stochastic. Um, in some cases, Clausewitz's fog of war, good strategy can often result in bad outcomes given a roll of the dice, um, bad weather, other things that are outside of your control. Additionally, it's difficult to reliably um, observe progress. So when you're fighting a counterinsurgency campaign, for example, in Iraq and Afghanistan, how do you observe how many parts and lines you want? How, how do you measure that? Additionally, um, it's difficult to accurately measure. As a result, um, voters must use an imperfect yet widely available metric in order to adjudicate how well a policy is being prosecuted on the battlefield. And I'm going to argue that that metric is casualties. As a result, politicians face very strong incentives to reduce the number of casualties coming home during a conflict in the lead-up to an election. So how does this occur? This occurs through two different ways. The first is direct, pol direct politicization. Um, this can be manifested in kind of three, in, in three categories, I would say. Um, the first is direct civilian control and intervention in military affairs. This is where the president or the secretary of defense makes the call down to the general and says, we need you to delay this operation. We need you to alter this target. The second is through a simple increase in monitoring. As you deploy um, politicized forces out onto the battlefield, the way that the 
Russians did with commissars or the Chinese did um, with their Politburo. When you deploy out into the, the field, you're inherently politicizing the military operations. And the third is the rules of engagement. So civilians control the rules of engagement. They control how well, um, how exposed soldiers are to risk uh, before they're able to fire back. So tightening or loosening these rules of engagement is the purview of civilians and can contribute to um, direct politicization. The second way is indirect politicization. This is where the military anticipates what, the, uh, what politicians might want in the lead up to an election. So while the civilians may not be directly ordering it, the military advice that's given instead reflects kind of political preferences. We don't think it would be appropriate to launch this before to launch this offensive before the election. This leads to three generalized theoretical hypotheses. The first has to do with risk exposure. Um, so I would expect that in order to try and decrease the amount of casualties, you want to decrease risk. So in the lead up to an election, you should see strategy, operations, and tactics that decrease the risk to soldiers and airmen in the lead up to an election. But after an election, I'd expect these results to return to essentially normal levels. The second hypothesis has to do with offensive operations. Because on the ground, offensive operations are inherently risky and involve combat, I would expect to see fewer of them um, in order to reduce the amount of casualties. The third is the intuitive explanation, which is you should actually see a reduction in casualties in the lead up to an election, um, and then a resumption of casualties, weekly casualties, to normal levels. I test this uh, using the case of South Vietnam. I look at the air campaign and casualty counts in South Vietnam. Why look at Vietnam? Um, it signals essentially a, a very big shift in U.S. strategy. It's the first use of, of air power um, that is intently, solely, intended solely for uh, coercive reasons with Operation Rolling Thunder. You get gradual escalation. And the, the idea is to force Vietnam, force North Vietnam to the negotiating table. So this coercive air campaign is, uh, is an enormously important part and it's the first in history. Additionally, the use of air power is one of the first examples that we see of this kind of substitution effect between technology, um, between, oh, okay. So it is the first uh, example that we see of capital um, casualty substitution. So we substitute um, air power in exchange for boots on the ground. And then finally, the, the technology of air power allows us, allows the United States to project power into very deep parts of North Vietnam that it would have never been able to project power into just 20 years before. Additionally, public exposure to Vietnam increases dramatically from the Korean War and from World War II. Um, this is due to the advent of journalists and freelance journalists who go to Vietnam and report back, as well as the government's lack of use of censors. Um, so during World War II in Korea, the U.S. government made heavy use of censors in order to control the message that was coming back to the American public. This is really the first major war that the United States is in that it doesn't make use of censors. Um, so in South Vietnam, I'm looking at the air campaign here. And looking at daytime air operations, um, this includes a trade-off between risk and reward. While daytime air operations and aerial bombing over South Vietnam is more precise and allows airmen to hit their targets more effectively, it's also much more dangerous. Um, because of the equipment that gets used by the North Vietnamese and by South Vietnamese over largely populated areas, 
Um, it's much easier to target U.S. planes and, and helicopters during the daytime. And as a result, pilots are much more likely to be shot down. As a result, I, um, I expect that there should be fewer daytime operations and daytime air operations in the lead up to an election, but that immediately after an election, you should see a resumption of your more precision bombing operations. Additionally, there's a trade-off during the war between close air support and interdiction operations. Close air support are typically seen as contributing operations to a ground offensive. So as US forces on the ground, move and attack Vietnamese bases, you see close air support that comes in and helps them regain territory. Um, by contrast, interdiction operations are intended to disrupt the Vietnamese war effort. So it's things like bombing, um, bombing bridges and um, large transportation facilities, etc. Close air support is typically thinking of bombing barracks or like Vietnamese troops or trucks, things like that. They're very different types of targets and types of operations for an interdiction versus close air support campaign. But given that you're only flying so many sorties per day, there's a substitution effect. Um, close air support operations, because they're tied to ground offensives, and I expect fewer ground offensives in the lead up to an election, I also expect fewer close air support operations. Hypothesis. The total effect of this is that we should see a decrease in casualties. So as we limit the risk to, as U.S. President limits the risk to forces and delays offensive operations until after an election, we should see a subsequent decrease in casualties in the lead up to an election, but then after the election is passed, a resumption of normal casualty levels. How do I test this? Air operations are tested using a new data set um, that was released in 2013 by the Air Force Research Institute at Maxwell Air Force Base. It is digitized records of every sortie flown over Vietnam from 1965 to 1975 in total 4.6 million observations. It's incredibly detailed. Uh, it includes the type of target, the geolocated uh, geo coordinates of the target, how much weight the plane was carrying, what the time of day was, what the weather was at the time of the sortie, both when it uh, took off and when it landed, um, among other important things. Casualty data is obtained from the U.S. National Archives um, as U.S. casualties during the service of Vietnam. It's separated by service, um, although I can find them all here. The important thing to note about this data is that I truncate it and don't include the, the casualties that occurred stateside or after soldiers were medevaced, uh, because this would bias the data. If I'm interested in casualties occurred in the field as a result of offensives, um, I'm not as worried. I Having data on casualties that occurred in a KIA that occurred in the states would bias this data, so I truncate it. Control variables are fairly standard. You control for overall troop levels, weather, seasons, offensives, uh, major offensives like Tet and uh, the Easter Offensive, as well as yearly indicators in order to control for general trends per year. I operationalize the independent variables in the following ways. Um, the first is I take a countdown of the months until the next election and then take the natural log. Because we think that month 23 to 22, so the difference between December and January of 1968 to 69, immediately after an election. That difference shouldn't matter as much as the difference between immediately after an election between two and one, right? 
Uh, so I take the natural log of that. Additionally, I use a separate binary indicator in order to test this theory of a real break between election cycles. So what we should observe is in the 90 days or the three months before an election should be substantively very different from the three months after the election. And this tests for a break. I operationalize the dependent variable um, in three ways. So for daytime operations, I take, I use a binary indicator that indicates whether a sortie was flown during the day or during the night, again, from the logs that are kept in the data set. Um, essentially, this is saying that conditional upon a sortie being flown that day, it is either initiated during daylight hours or uh, not in daylight hours. I do essentially the same thing for close air support, assuming the substitution effect. Conditional upon a sortie being flown, is it categorized as a close air support operation or is it an interdiction operation? And then finally, I take the number of U.S. casualties for EPP. Uh, this essentially, I do it by week because um, this is the this is the unit of analysis that is most appropriate for the American public. Most casualties were announced um, in small towns and in the city on a weekly basis, like reading off the names of town halls, things like that. So here are the results. Um, for the tactical level daylight operations, uh, these are the predicted values for how likely an operation is to be flown um, during the daytime in the lead up to an election. So these are the, the predicted results. As you can see, um, it follows the natural log curve and the standard errors um, so that this is really statistically significant. Additionally, the break here um, shows that operations are significantly more, less likely to be flown during the daytime as, um, as during normal hours um, or during normal months. Um, but then once you get into the three months immediately after an election, it pops right back up to statistically average. Yes? I'm looking at presidential and midterm elections. So this covers 1966, 68, 70, and 72. Um, the, this is the predicted results for the probability of an air support operation being close air support as opposed to an interdiction operation. Again, you see the predicted values dropping with highly statistically significant results. And we look at the break. Um, this is much less likely to be categorized as a close air support operation, and then once you get three months after the election, um, it returns to statistically normal levels, indistinguishable from zero. Finally, these are the results for the number of casualties per week in South Vietnam. You see again, oh, um, so this is, this is a graph of Air Force casualties during uh, Operation Rolling Thunder. This doesn't particularly pertain to South Vietnam, but it is a good illustrative um, look at, at just how the raw numbers play out. So you see here this general trend um, in 1965 and 1966 of increases in casualties. And then immediately before the election, you see a decline. Um, and then you see it continue straight back up right after the election. So this is kind of visually what we're looking at regarding casualty levels. These are the predicted values for casualties in South Vietnam. Um, again, you see the, it following the log support, and as we get closer to the election, um, it becomes statistically significant and different. Here's the break. Um, these are the average marginal effects. So between 30 days before an election, 30 days after an election. Um, this is highly significant, um, substantively at least. This suggests that you get 30 fewer casualties per week 
uh, in South Vietnam in the lead up to an election was a 30% difference with average casualties around 110. That's about a 30% difference, 30% decline in casualties leading up in three months before an election than any other time. Uh, so I think I've got a little bit of time actually to go through the, the historical look. Um, the second part of the paper, the second part of the chapter, takes a look at the end of the Nixon administration and the role of um, of domestic politics in influencing Operation Linebacker and Linebacker 2. Um, I think when discussing Linebacker 2 and the Christmas bombings, also known as the Christmas bombings, um, we look at the timeline here, and Nixon, Nixon goes to South Vietnam and starts this work not large bombing operation, but he um, he sends Kissinger out to make a deal over the course of the summer. Nixon is convinced that he needs to be able to announce peace with Vietnam um, before the election. Kissinger has a great quote where he says to his aides, you don't understand. I need this peace deal. I don't care what I have to give away, but we need to get this before the election. Um, he does. On October 26th, Kissinger comes up with a uh, with a deal for North Vietnam and announces to the press corps that peace is at hand. Nixon wins in a landslide, um, not entirely because of the Vietnam proposal, but in the end, because of this because of this peace deal that was reached, one in three anti-war Democrats end up voting for Nixon uh, because he ended the because he ended the Vietnam War. This deal eventually fell apart. Um, and because South Vietnam refused to negotiate and walked away from the table. As a result, Nixon had to convince the North Vietnamese to come back um, in the face of a hostile anti-war Congress. So um, while Nixon was being reelected for essentially ending the Vietnam War, um, the public also elected a, a very anti-war Congress who wasn't going to fund the Vietnam War with the next congressional section. Nixon found himself facing a deadline. Congress convenes in January, and he needed to have a peace deal in hand before the next Congress came. So he announces Operation Linebacker 2. Um, Linebacker, Linebacker 2 would have been much more effective uh, strategically had it been launched during the spring, after the North Vietnamese monsoon season. Um, however, um, Nixon didn't have that luxury. He couldn't wait. So we have 12 days of the Christmas bombings that occur in December um, and into January. And finally, in um, the third week of January, January uh, 27th, six days after Congress starts its new session, um, the Vietnam War ends in large part because of the effectiveness of Linebacker II in forcing the North Vietnamese back to the table. So in sum, uh, civilian leaders intervene in military operations because they want to retain domestic political power. Um, this is a profound incentive in order to make a war effort look better than it may actually be going. In democracies, um, this kind of intervention is going to occur when there's an election. And as a result, we see these dramatic variations in how states conduct wars when their leaders are running for re-election. The rest of the book looks at four additional empirical cases. The first is a statistical analysis of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, the second is a series of comparisons
comparative case studies using both the most different and most similar case design for the caisson operation uh, that I mentioned earlier in the talk, as well as um, the battles of Fallujah and Talfar in Iraq in 2004 and 2005, respectively. Third is an analysis of Operation Rolling Thunder over North Vietnam, um, a very separate coercive air campaign. And then finally, I look at a, a comparative case study between U.S. and U.K. strategic bombing operations over Germany at the end of World War II. Uh, this, this chapter in this theory makes three large contributions, I think. Um, it first, it challenges the normal theory of civil-military relations that suggests that civilian strategists don't get involved in military operations and tactics. I find that this is simply not the case. Um, additionally, it fills a theoretical, empirical, and methodological gap in the literature and the theories of state behavior during conflict. We don't have, there's an emerging literature of state behavior in conflict and the role of democracies, but it largely lacks a lot of data and um, the, the kinds of methods that would provide for both internal and external validity. Finally, it contributes to the literature on a democratic victory and the influences of regime type um, on battlefield effectiveness and um, on military operations on the battlefield. Thank you. Okay, uh, the queue is open. Um, uh, I was going to say we're going to try a new innovation uh, of uh, asking undergraduates to ask the first questions but before I could even propose that new innovation, uh, two faculty members and a graduate student uh, <laughs> got their hands up, uh, thus thwarting uh, that uh, uh, noble effort. Is there an undergraduate who would like to uh, kick things off? If not, we'll stick with the uh, tried and true uh, of the uh, faculty and graduate students uh, speaking first. Kyle. Yes, I would like to know why, if this keeps happening, if casualties will decrease in the months leading up to an election, but increase right after, how is that still an effective way for politicians to gain office? Um, that went a different place than I thought you were going to. Um, so it's an effective way for politicians to essentially say business as usual with Right. So um, the function of the presidency, essentially, um, is that you get to run for re-election once and then you have two midterms during a two-term presidency. So the idea is that when you're in conflict, you want to distract public attention away from the war, especially if it's an unpopular war. You want to be able to say, like, this is going fine, no new news here, but the more casualties come back, then the more leaders get very worried about that impact on the polls. And so if the public is focused on things more like the economy um, or, or other issues, then the decrease in casualties is going to essentially go kind of unnoticed. But a rise in casualties or new offensive operations are going to turn the public attention back to the war. Does that answer your question? Uh, okay, thank you. Taj? Yeah, um, so... The writing sample that we had only had the case study of Vietnam. So I was wondering, in the other cases, did you read, find different conclusions? So, for example, like the surge in 2007, that would be more of a risky strategy and an uptick in the war, which is different than 
um, what happens in the case study of Vietnam. And then also, it seems that the cause of it would be more oriented towards success than decreasing casualties in the war. So do you find different conclusions in different case studies? And, yeah. Uh, so to specifically address the surge, the surge was announced in January of 2007, about six weeks after... Yeah, that's six weeks after the congressional midterms. Um, so when the U.S. announces this new strategy that we're going to be sending an additional 10, battalions or brigades, um, 10 brigades to, to Iraq, um, it, was, it was an enormous increase in forces and what most would call a, a gamble from legacy by the Bush administration. And so he wanted to end the war before his term was over but couldn't announce the surge until after the elections because, or couldn't even really contemplate a surge before the elections uh, because the war was so politically unpopular. Okay, so I've got uh, Nisha Fazal, uh, Sean Braniff, Dan Lindley, and uh, Ben Dennison. Anybody else that I'm missing on the list? Nisha. between presidential versus congressional or midterm elections, and are the dynamics uh, different? And then uh, the comment had to do with um, the contested nature uh, of your assumption about casualty sensitivity, particularly uh, given that uh, uh, many people argue that there's a fundamental difference uh, in that issue between the conscripted force versus the all-volunteer force. Um, great. So I make, I include all the different kinds of elections um, in part because the president, um, well, I should first off say that the U.S. is unique in this, in this setup, right, um, where we have general elections and then we have um, congressional elections. There are some parliamentary systems that do a presidential election and a parliamentary election, um, but the U.S. is really unique in its kind of fixed election cycles where you have kind of off doing congressional elections. I make this assumption on treating the elections as equal because fundamentally the president is still a member of a party and the president still has incentives to make his party look good um, compared to the um, compared to the other party elements. 
So, for example, in particular, like the surge example, um, Bush delays announcing a surge or even really doing systematic study of what a surge would do until after the 2000 midterms because um, a large part of the controversy of the 06 midterms was the Iraq war and the prosecution of the Iraq war. So I think it's fair to treat these essentially as similar. Theoretically, I would expect there to be increased results, right? Theoretically and empirically, I would expect the results to be stronger during a re-election bid. Unfortunately, the end on that is one. Um, two, if you consider FDR during World War II and Bush during Iraq. That's essentially your end. And Truman, because Truman withdraws and Johnson withdraws, and so you don't have that. Um, and Truman loses, sorry. Um, so you don't, you don't have no, Truman withdraws because Stevenson takes his place. So um, you just you don't have that many ends to, to look at it empirically. But, but theoretically, I would expect results to be stronger for, for a re-election bit. On casualty sensitivity, um, I agree. The literature is, is highly contested about whether or not it is a phenomenon. Um, I essentially state, however, that presidents are it goes into the decision-making calculus of a president or prime minister whether or not the public really is casualty accepting or casualty reverse or not. Um, so, for example, you find Johnson lamenting the fact that he has all of these all of these things that he has to do, and he's literally counting down the votes that he loses. He says, "I've got two million votes lost if I increase troops. I've got another two million votes lost if I increase taxes to support the war." And so he's He's mentally ticking down how many votes he's losing because of casualties, because of these efforts that are going to affect the public. Um, and the question about the, the all-volunteer army versus the conscripted army, I think, is, is an open question. Um, it's certainly an implication of this theory that it would be more effective under a conscripted army because it relies on an understanding of public casualty sensitivity, um, but it's not one that I test here. Okay, uh, Sean Brennan. Thank you. My question was uh, exactly Lisa's uh, question about what congressional elections tell us. So I'll ask you another question that's, I think, slightly less fair because that's not something that we necessarily need to know. But that's your theory of, um, I don't know, voter uh, action. Right? So if I'm home in the United States since 1970, um, and you mentioned in the paper that uh, during times of war, uh, I'm going to be especially sensitive to one policy. Right, not during peace time, but during during wartime. And so, I'm just curious, what type of um, sensitivity you expect me to have in terms of these casualties going forward? Right? Why is it that I've not formed kind of a, a sticky opinion about about the war, um, one way or the other? Right, and I can evaluate casualties during the previous year, or previous years. Right, why is it that I'm especially um, sensitive to these these immediate uh, months and weeks? So the, the question is, uh, why should casualty sensitivity um, be so much greater immediately before an election as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, have its effect uh, months before the election when you remember it, you know, closer to the election that you were ticked off about all these casualties eight months prior to that? So there are two answers to this question. Um, the first is... If, if I did make the assumption that casualty sensitivity does exist and that voters do act on it, um, 
then the assumption that I would have to be making is that voters are constantly updating their beliefs about the war. And that the more casualties occur and the more casualties that come home, the more likely they are to infer that the war is going to happen. Um, I don't make the assumption that casualty sensitivity is a real-life phenomenon, though. I, I make the assumption that the politicians think it is. And so, um, and so politicians very clearly think that casualties and the, the prosecution of war and updates regarding the war matter much more immediately before an election, and that's how they behave, both in terms of wartime policy as well as sometimes economic policy and other, other issues. So they're trying to put gas prices, for example, um, the best face on the government immediately before an election. Okay, uh, Dan Linden, thank you. Um, great talk. To my mind is counterintuitive results. So what I'm going to ask you for are cases from my intuition. Just make it sort of like, <laughs> um, so it seems to me just sort of deductive when you think the presidents would actually want to push the pedal to the metal if things aren't going well. For example, 5,000 Marines potentially in crap, what if they got overrun? That would have been the greater risk, actually, uh, prior to the election. So, why, where are the cases of, say, prospect theory, right? You, you ramp it up when you're in the domain of losses. Fight for a Hail Mary uh, at the time of an election. Uh, using force for domestic benefit, like Desert Fox, uh, quite your example, tries to cover up the monitor, as I recall. Part. Um, so, uh, what about Carter's hospital? Things like that. I'm just wondering where are the cases that go against your theory? So that's question um, number one. Question number two what if the enemy knows about your hypotheses and your effects and tries to play on them? So, think for example, big mystery for me in Iraq and in Afghanistan is there was no Tet Offensive equivalent. Right? It really would have domestically, politically ruined the wars for President Bush. Why didn't that happen? What do you know of any instances where enemies do explicitly play for a public opinion like that? Yeah. Okay, so two questions. Uh, why no? Uh, why don't uh, civilian leaders, in fact, accelerate their efforts to win the war uh, close to elections? And uh, what if the enemy knows that you're right? What if they're reading Carrie Lee's uh, unpublished <laughs> dissertation? Um, and uh, why aren't they uh, more consistently playing on the logic that you've identified? Um, so my two favorite cases, I guess, that the disconfirm the theory um, happened during the Civil War and during World War II. Um, and, and I argue that this, this creates both scope conditions on, on the theory. So, uh, during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln in 1864 is very concerned that he's going to lose the general election and, uh, and orders his generals to mount a spring offensive, essentially so that when the peacetime candidate is elected, he can't, um, when, when the anti-war candidate who wants to sue for peace is elected, um, he can't sue for peace because the Union has, has essentially pushed the battlefield so far, so far up and created created so many gains that you can't walk it back. Um, so that's that's an example of, of prospect theory, right? Looking at your losses, expecting to lose an election, but then kind of doubling down and making sure that, that you're successful. Additionally, uh, during World War II, so FDR, uh, right before the, I want to say, um, 
think it's the 44 election. Um, they, 42 or 44, I need to go back and check that. Um, but there's a, it's 42, because it's the, the Patton or Bethlehem election. And so right before that, um, they are, FDR is very excited that they can, that they can move the, the offensive, um, they can move the offensive up. And so, because it's, they want to be able to show that they're making progress against, against the Germans. But again, this is kind of an existential conflict, right? You get the Civil War, which is a battle for, for the Union itself, and World War II, which is the closest the world has ever come to total war. And so in the, in these kinds of large mass conflicts, I don't really expect this theory to hold. I expect politicians to, to do what they have to do and not really worry about, about elections. Um, in the, you know, because the public is, is very willing to, to accept casualties in order to regain the status of the nation. Uh, so, yes, the, the relationship between the military and the enemy is dynamic. And this, this project essentially kind of skims over that. Um, there is one chapter where I test for that, however, and it's the Iraq-Afghanistan chapter. I look at the difference between SIGACs that are initiated by coalition forces versus SIGACs that are initiated by insurgent forces. And I, um, I find really no difference between um, in between election cycles before or after an insurgent initiated violence, either against U.S. forces or against civilians. So I test for sectarian violence as well. And you don't see, you don't see systematic increases or decreases in violence around U.S. election cycles. Um, but, you know, for Vietnam, it is the case that Ho Chi Minh and after he dies, Hanoi is, keeps a very close eye on U.S. elections, which is why I control for it in the statistical analysis. I don't have a great theory about whether it should nullify or amplify the casualty sensitivity measurements. Okay, thank you. Uh, ben Dennison. Uh, thank you, Carrie, for the uh, great um, presentation. Uh, I'll echo Misha's questions on um, human validity. And um, just I'm curious to hear you talk about your other cases that you've done, excuse me, you should talk about the nature. Um, what changes um, if you move outside of the U.S. into a parliamentary system with the British, then the elections are endogenous, basically. They can call them whenever they want. Uh, so there's not kind of a week-to-election measure. Um, so is this just a story about U.S. elections, or does it extend to other democracies as well? Um, and also, is, is Vietnam a, a salient national issue, uh, whereas once you move outside the all-volunteer force, um, once you move to the all-volunteer force, the salience of the conflict. Disappear. So, just kind of how does this extend out to other cases? Uh, be interesting to talk about. Um, and then the second point, uh, question is just how, um, evidence do you have any more evidence about the role that public opinion actually plays on uh, the leaders? So, I'm thinking uh, it might be interesting to include a larger measure of approval rating uh, in the models in the future. I mean, you know, you think about 2006 in Iraq and 1960 in Vietnam, the approval ratings going down. So, um, but if the approval rating was going up, say in around 2002, um, there was a high approval rating, is there a different effect that you'd see that the approval rating of the president uh, during the conflict is actually high, then he's not as worried about um, using casualties as he can push him forward. Um, I don't know if there's evidence on that, but there's not many cases, but just what your theoretical expectations would be. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So, two questions. 
one is how far the theory travels, particularly in light of different types of uh, democratic regimes, presidential again, uh, versus uh, parliamentary regimes, types of conflict, and uh, nature of the military format, uh, all con conscript versus uh, all-volunteer force. And secondly, does it matter what the initial approval uh, level was for the presidential administration? presidency with a pretty high approval rate, ignore your dynamics? Um, so thank you for asking that question, because I get to talk about my strategic bombing World War II case now. Um, so the, the importance of doing the final case study in the book, which is a, a comparative case study of strategic bombing doctrine and strategic bombing operations during World War II between the U.S. and the U.K., and I wanted to test it with this endogenous, because the UK holds endogenous elections. They get to call the elections when they want. And during World War II, they had a unity government. They dispensed with elections because Churchill and others in the, in the ministry did not want to have to deal with presidential politics and parliamentary politics during the middle of the war. Um, but the war is coming to an end. And so Churchill realizes that he's going to have to call elections soon. And the Conservative Party wants to hold it sooner than later because they want to capitalize on Churchill's status as a great wartime leader. We know that this didn't eventually work out. Um, but this was the thinking of the Conservative Party. Churchill then becomes very concerned, right as discussions within the Conservative Party come up, um, about when to hold elections. Churchill becomes very concerned with the aftermath of Dresden and the RAF area offensive. And he starts to, to have real doubts about whether or not the RAF should continue with the area offensive, continue essentially indiscriminate bombing over Germany. Um, he writes a memo that was later actually withdrawn to um, to his joint chiefs saying that, and to, to Arthur Harris, also known as Bomber Harris, at Bomber Command, um, we must cease and desist terror bombing. The, the aftermath and the impact of Dresden is still very much on the minds of the public. We need to turn our attentions away from reconstructing Germany from our bombs and reconstructing at home. So he's, he's making the argument to his joint chiefs that it's no, longer, it's no longer necessary to continue with the area offensive, but it's also no longer politically right, because we need to start focusing on reconstruction in England, and the public is unhappy about the aftermath of Dresden and how, and how many civilian lives were lost there. So I do think that it applies to two parliamentary systems. Um, future research, and I have a project going now to add a chapter to this as part of a book project, and it's a comparative case study um, of Kandahar and Helmand provinces in Afghanistan, which all underwent um, differences in control between U.S., Canada, and Great Britain, all of which have different election cycles, um, different types of systems. And so I want to compare and contrast and see whether these results really do hold in these kind of micro-level provinces and in this micro-level and really track troop movements, violence levels, etc. in Afghanistan. For your second question on um, lagging approval ratings, oh, you asked about the all-volunteer force as well. Um, it's, it's an implication for the study and I think is, is good for future research. Um, if I had to theoretically guess, again, I would say that, yeah, the all-volunteer force shifts responsibility and shifts casualty sensitivity away from the general public and onto a much a much different subset of the population, namely military families and kind of that, that insular community. But um but I don't really
really see evidence of that in Iraq and Afghanistan. I still see these, statistically at least, and um, in case studies, I still see presidents very worried about launching new offensives immediately before an election. I still see troops being moved back to much more secure bases in the lead up to an election so as to reduce the risk that they're exposed to um, these kinds of things. So while theoretically it may seem like we shouldn't be experiencing that, empirically we really have really a difference. Approval ratings. That was the second question. Um, I did try that, actually. I, I interacted approval ratings with the lead up to an election, and I didn't really find anything. So I I think there's there's no ego too big, um, or no ego too small, I guess, to everybody's, they're worried about it. Again, with a, and again, with a re-election campaign, Ian is there too. Okay, thank you. Ian Timber? Yes, sir. Um, thank you for your presentation. Uh, my question is about your graphs and the researchers. Yeah. Um, right after the election, Okay, so the uh, question is uh, about the uh, graphs um, and uh, why there's a, a sharp peak and then a, uh, a slow uh, recoil from it. So this is best described in the sense of, um, of looking at offensive operations because all other things being equal, um, which is a tough thing to say in political science, but but all of the things being equal, we should observe kind of systematic application of offensives. And so if you if you delay major ground offensives, those offensives still need to happen at some point, right? Um, the, the battle for Fallujah, for example. Um, it would have been ideal to do it in September or October. There are variety of reasons why that didn't happen, including the fact that there was an election on November 2nd, I think, of that year. Um, and so it happened on November 7th. It happened immediately after. So you should see this spike in offensive operations because they've been delayed for so long. And then in the immediate aftermath, you should see you should see this happen um, with, more free, with more frequency. Um, and then it returns to sort of baseline normal levels and then drops again. Why the sharp, sharp uh, drop? I think because I expect the spike to happen immediately after an election, and then, um, and then it just it drops down to normal levels. So that's, um, I think theoretically that's sort of what what the theory expects. You've been delayed, delayed, delayed. The election happens, and now you can go forward and do everything. And now you're back to baseline levels. It's not this sort of gradual, well, we were going to do it in September, but that was politically inopportune, so we're going to do it in February. That, that doesn't really happen. You say, we wanted to do it in September, now we're going to do it in late November or early December. And you get that through. Okay. Uh, Sebastian Rosado? Successful, 
So what's that calculation you're doing? And to me, it seems you have this assumption that that's what they think that public, but what is success when you can capture And then two questions about other ordinances. Um, is there any evidence that other states expect the United States of America to pay off the evacuation of the war option? Is there any willing what you know or what you know? Uh, and second, is there any evidence that the public understands what that's going to do? Or the family? Okay, so uh, three, three questions. One is, uh, what is the trade-off between casualties uh, versus victory? Of course, you cited Peter Fever um, in your paper, but uh, the uh, thing that Peter and his colleagues have written that's probably most relevant is the, their argument about uh, the effect of subjective expectation of success um, in public support. Um, secondly, uh, he asked, uh, do other states recognize um, this pattern? Um, and thirdly, does the public, public recognize that it's fickle, that uh, it thinks about casualties just close to elections, but otherwise doesn't? Um, on, the, on the question of, I'm actually going to answer these in reverse order. Uh, so does the public know? I don't think so. Um, I don't. I don't think that this is a. This is a thing that the public really catches on about um, because it's a reduction in casualties. It's that no news is good news, right? Um, if you're not reporting on a major offensive operation, the public doesn't really pay attention. Um, as opposed to if you're reporting on a a new major offensive or a rash of new casualties that are coming in, that takes the public's attention. But otherwise, out of sight, out of. Um, as far as other states, I think that would be really interesting to explore. I haven't explored that yet, about whether whether other states compensate. I did test in the Iraq and Afghanistan chapter whether coalition, other coalition forces, particularly in the South and the British and Basra, experienced the similar reduction in operations around the U.S. electoral calendar, and I didn't find any evidence of that. Um, but, but I haven't looked at, and I... I have not systematically looked at how other states may or may not be, be compensating around the U.S. Electoral Um Yes, Fever and Jolpe's work on the the attitude of success, um, casualty tolerance in the face of expected success and expected winning the war. Um, I I don't disagree with with what they project, but in the kinds of wars that I'm analyzing. Vietnam conflict, Iraq and Afghanistan, it seems very unlikely that a, a four-month surge to, to retake territory is going to really win the war in a sufficient manner. And so when you talk about these kind of long, protracted conflicts that are unlikely to be wrapped up with a, a four-month push or a, a three-month push, I think that, that's, that would be asking an awful lot of, of a president to so many new forces to an offensive immediately. Um, additionally, you run into right. You run into the problem with um, Lenin Kosovo, where the public then may begin to suspect electoral heaven. And so, I think the the impetus is out of sight, out of mind. Okay, uh, I'm going to recognize the distinguished moderator for a, uh, a brief <laughs> intervention. Um, so, I'm I'm curious as to uh, what the smoking gun 
would look like in the archival record that would prove uh, that Carrie Lee is right. Um, and you do have uh, a quote from uh, Henry uh, Kissinger um, in, in the fall of 1972, um, in which he says, you know, we've got to get this thing done before the election. Um, and, and that looks pretty good. But I'm wondering, uh, is this what you would expect to see and who would be saying it uh, at that level in 68 um, and in 64? And is there any evidence uh, that you can point to uh, of that sort of thinking? I guess, you know, the, the problem uh, with hanging so much on the 72 election is, uh, first of all, Nixon had campaigned in 68 uh, in uh, finding peace with honor. I think most people heard that as the peace part of it. So there was an expectation that, that he had created. And secondly, there's all the accumulated uh, casualties that the United States had suffered up to that point, um, you know, which could, uh, to, uh, you know, the, the cynical mind, lead to the conclusion that, you know, by 72, Nixon and Kissinger uh, were painted into a corner by these dynamics, um, but it's less clear that that would have been the case, uh, especially in 64. So do you, do you have other uh, smoking gun evidence, or where would you look for it um, in the archives? Who should say it, and what should they be saying? A very prescient question, as I have an archival trip to the LBJ library scheduled for next week uh, <laughs> to look for such a smoking gun. Um, I mean, LBJ is... is I would expect, on, on who should be saying this one, but, um, I would expect LBJ or um, any of his very close advisors, Matt Formby, uh, Dee Ross, um, Clifford, um, etc., to McNamara, um, to be either write a memo. I mean, the, the historical record on Vietnam is, is very rich, full of comments about um, about how they should be altering military operations in response to what's going on domestically and politically. Um, Matt Bundy writes an urgent memo to Johnson saying that uh, we need a we need a political left to go with the right hook, and the answer to that could be the answer to RFK's challenge to your and the primaries could be a cessation of bombing, and we would have to really mean it, and we would have to really stop strategic bombing in order to. Uh, satisfy this domestic political concern that we have, namely RFK as reckless primary challenger. So I expect things like that. Uh, that's that's a, as good as a smoking gun as, as I think it comes um, regarding the strategic bombing operation. And I'll be looking for similar evidence about the about the 1966 midterm elections regarding Operation World Thunder. Um, that's the kind of the main purpose of the trip for for next week is to look for for similar memos. Um, that from domestic political liaisons or the, the close circle with the NSC, National Security Council, <laughs> that explains some of the thinking behind this. Um, what we see is the is the drop in casualties uh, leading up to the 66 midterms and then the resumption of joint operations. So that's what I'm going to be looking for. Okay. Um, Luis Chanon.
So uh, the, the question is basically, uh, do the statistical tests uh, actually uh, examine, you know, the, all the nuances uh, of the argument that you're making, or are they somewhat coarse uh, representations of the mechanisms you think that it operates? Um, good question on the on the statistics. I have not done a direct test of the mediating factors, and um, I think that that's that's for twofold reasons. Um, the first is that I don't expect that these measures, these risk aversion measures, are the only risk aversion measures that are um, that are happening on the battlefield. So I don't expect it to be the sole explanatory variable for the reduction of casualties. I think there's a lot of other things going on regarding rules of engagement and other forms of um, politicization that occur. And so I don't expect that a reduction, that the, the marginal reduction in the number of daylight sorties is going to explain, is going to sufficiently explain the the entire reduction of casualties. I think it's a lot of other things going on. Um, the other reason is, um, well, no, it's basically just that. <laughs> um, so I, I don't expect it to have a ton of explanatory power if I use just the risk aversion as, as kind of a mediating variable in testing the relationship. Okay. Um, Griffin Cameron? Okay, so the question is, uh, given uh, the relative absence of censorship, uh, how does this uh, affect your story? And would the story change uh, if censorship were, uh, you know, more, uh, you know, more assiduously applied? Uh, this this broaches on a an entire other research project that I have going on, looking at the role of technology in um, in affecting battlefield operations and how aware the public is and kind of the the ability of the public to get up close and personal with war um, over time as a result of technology. So the government deployment of sensors in World War II in Korea was largely in order to maintain public morale, to be able to control the narrative that was coming out of Western Europe and the Pacific uh, in a way that made the government look very good. and um, made the public think that they're hard at work pursuing effective policies. It was the information that the government wanted to relay. Vietnam's very different in this regard. Um, you get independent freelance journalists who come out, look at atrocities like Hanoi, um, the, the famous photograph of the napalm bombing, um, it, and Hanoi is sending its own propaganda messages out to the United States and to the U.S. public about civilian casualties. So the U.S. is really exposed, and the advent of TV, most, most Americans at that point have TVs in their home for the first time. So you have an American public that is particularly sensitive to, to American casualties and seeing it happen right before their eyes on their television at home in a way that just wasn't the case um, in conflicts prior. And so I expect that starting with Vietnam, you should see a, a dramatic increase in casualty sensitivity um, amongst the public and an increase in government concern over how sensitive the public is because they're no longer controlling the narrative. I would expect this to increase also um, over time with YouTube and 
journalism, anybody with a cell phone can tell you, can show you exactly what's going on on the ground, or, you know, alter images in order to make you think something is going on the ground. So, um, I'm, I'm in the middle of a research project that's sort of looking at these things and trying to tease out what the, what the expectations are regarding censorship, um, government messaging, and the proliferation of technology on the battlefield. Um, I have some intuitions, but the research isn't complete yet. Okay, uh, Sir Jun Kim. Uh, thank you for presenting this paper. I enjoyed a lot and learned a lot from your paper. Um, I have a general, one general comment and one specific comment. Um, first of all, I have to echo what Sebastian and also mentioned slope conditions and the extent to which your theory can be generalized. Um, so, I thought about this. Um, maybe when people, when American public are not particularly flexible in their security, uh, maybe they're, they might be less sensitive to the number of the casualty numbers. And, uh, for example, World War One, World War II, American people might be more concerned about the result of wars, winning or losing, rather than just the number of casualties. So um, let's think about um, if America fight um, with China. Um, then maybe when elections is um, coming near, um, maybe people might be support for the presidential candidate who gives <laughs> confidence that, that they will, they will win this war somehow. Um, so I thought that maybe um, when Americans feel threatened in their security, they might be more concerned about the result of the wars rather than the number of casualties. Um, so maybe you can specify your scope conditions in which your theory can be generalized. Um, and my second comment is a little bit more specific and less important. Um, your section 3.2 um, provides the existing existing explanations about the bombing strategy. And um, one of the existing um, explanations of the bombing strategy was um, this bureaucratic bias. And in on page 9, the first line you said, as a result, hesitation was never able to truly make an impact the countryside and alternative strategies to the war in Vietnam were near, never truly considered. Um, when I read this section, I felt like um, this existing explanations is the strategy adopted by the military more in general, but rather than particularly about the bombing strategy. Probably this is why you are presenting your theory, so, so that you can explain the bombing strategy. Uh, but I was not particularly sure whether this particular um, existing explanation, such as bureaucratic biases, can be directly related to the bias strategy. Okay, so two questions. Uh, one is, what effect might the stakes that uh, are on the table for war uh, have on uh, casualty sensitivity? Um, and secondly, what's the link between uh, the bureaucratic uh, uh, imperatives and military strategy in your argument? On a generalization and scope conditions, um, I'm 
I'm perfectly happy to admit that um, there are scope conditions on this argument, and one of which I believe is whether a country is facing a, a total war or a limited war. Um, but historically, most wars are limited. So I don't think that the cases of World War II or potential great power war um, in the future, God forbid, um, is, I, I, I wouldn't expect these, um, these conditions to hold. Even in the World War II case that I study, by February, March of 1945, the war is essentially over. And so um, Churchill and FDR have the luxury, uh, Churchill has the luxury of turning to the domestic public and thinking about elections again. Um, because it's, it's fairly clear that the war is going to be over in a very short period of time. For bureaucratic, um, for bureaucratic explanations explaining the bombing strategy, um, Yes, so in my recitation of, of Fulmer's argument in for bureaucracy does its thing, he's talking mostly about why pacification on the ground, um, pacification being what we today would refer to as kind of coin or population-centric counterinsurgency, why it failed. Um, a big part of why it failed, however, is because the U.S. had this enormous bombing campaign that continued to bomb hamlets and civilians uh, all over South Vietnam, in many cases, trying to get them to evacuate. And so, uh, but because the military has this preference for kinetic action, for large offensive operations, and for um, for heavy bombing in this kind of attempt to substitute capital in the form of air power for boots on the ground and casualties, uh, because the military has these preferences, um, pacification doesn't never really was able to work unless it how it relates to the strategy. I could be more clear about Okay, uh, Michael Funa. Um, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, so I don't know if you've explored this, um, but as far as your theory goes, would we expect to see the same decline in casualties, uh, risky operations, etc., under hawkish administrations that might be less um, sensitive to casualties, and, and how would that compare to more dovish administrations? Okay, so the question is, does the ideology of the administration or place on the hawk dove spectrum matter for casualty sensitivity. I'm going to be bold here and suggest that it doesn't matter. Um, one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to test in the book so many different cases um, across uh, across party, across ideology, um, inside and outside of administrations, through through casualties, etc., is to see is this something that's only a Republican. It's only a hawkish phenomenon, it's a dovish phenomenon, etc. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really find much. Once you find yourself at war, um, administrations tend to take on very different, very different personas. The, the placement on the hawk dove spectrum is a little less, um, a little less relevant. Um, so, for example, uh, Obama came in as a dove mostly. I mean, he promised to get out of Gitmo and and the war in Iraq and the war. But what have we seen? Obama at war has given you know, remains. Um, U.S. troops are still in Afghanistan, re entered Iraq, um, about to launch a major offensive into Mosul. Um, so it's, um, I think the, the hawk dove spectrum isn't as relevant once you find a country at war. Um, and I don't find any evidence of systematic change depending on who's in charge. Uh, Kate Bolifer? Uh, 
Otherwise, we want to focus on skin cancer in Florida. And so my question is, what does that have to do with how we respond? You said in a midterm election, it was important because presidents are members of their party. Well, the last time a president was at war and decided not to run, it's true in 1952. And you see both houses of Congress flip from Democrat to Republican. Um, so it seems to me that in that particular election, you should see an extreme response in one way or the other. Either Johnson wholly doesn't care about what happens to his party and, and follows whatever practices he wants, in which case he's not a great risk. Or, given the fact that he's in Congress, when the flip in 1952 happens, he goes from Senate Majority Whip to Senate Minority Leader, so he's very aware that, you know, that that dynamic changed, he should be overly cautious in the lead-up to the election. And do you find evidence of that in which direction? So is the uh, 68 election problematic for Durant? This is a short summary. (laughs) (laughs) Um... 68 election is fascinating for for a variety of reasons. Um, not just the, the March 31 announcement and withdrawal, but also the, the couple of weeks immediately before the election. Because Johnson, Johnson is not um, he's not unsympathetic to the cause of Democrats, right? He he wants Humphrey to get to get elected um, as president. Uh, so and and the archival evidence suggests that um, Johnson was very much aware that this, that his strategy in Vietnam was, was hurting the Democrats. Humphrey adopted a very similar line as Johnson uh, for most over most of the summer. It only really broke with Johnson's policies into October before the November election. And so Johnson's activities in the war, while he himself is not involved in the presidential politics and the electoral politics, he's still very aware of what is going on discussions and memos that go back and forth between Humphrey and Johnson about that. Um, what's fascinating is that in right at the end of October, um, Johnson sees an opening with Hanoi um, over a bombing cessation and the presumption of peace talks. And Humphrey is livid um, because it completely undermines his campaign. Because when now Johnson announces a cessation and all bombing, Post um, an all bombing over North Vietnam. Before that, he had uh, ended Operation Relent Thunder on March 31, but continued to bomb uh, just south of the 20th parallel. The DMZ is the 17th parallel, so there are three degrees of latitude essentially where, Bob, where Johnson continues to bomb. And he ceases all of those bombing operations and resumes peace talks with Hanoi about two weeks before the election. Um, and, and Humphrey is, is beside himself. Because he can't believe that Johnson just undermined everything that he had been campaigning on. Um, and now Nixon's peace with honor looks very good. Um, and Nixon wins the election by a hair of his chinny chin. So I, I do see evidence that these kinds of electoral and presidential politics are at play. But Johnson, because he's not the one running, ends up taking <clears throat> taking the offer on the table from Hanoi um, because he is desperate to end or at least free of worrying for his own election. Okay, uh, Sarah Seavers, please. Hi, really fascinating. Um, my question is much more specific in nature. Um, how much do you think the, the subcontinent's influence in this is U.S. president Bush and the presence of American forces in the subcontinent do that? 
So the question is, uh, what's the effect of non-combatant uh, civilian casualties on public opinion? The short answer is, all else being equal, we'd like to avoid it. Um, all else being equal, we'd like to avoid it. Right? The U.S. tries to avoid it. Um, and, and you do see some examples of this throughout history of altering bombing strategy in the lead up to an election. The UK example is the one that, that I get most in detail on because the war is essentially over. Your risk to pilots, the, um, the Allies had established by that time air superiority over Germany. And so there was very little risk to, or much dramatically reduced risk to pilots flying over a continent of Europe at that time. And now they start to worry about civilian casualties in line of Dresden and uh, what had happened at Hamburg the year before. So, so all those being equal, and assuming that you're not going to lose more friendly, you're not increasing the risk to friendly um, pilots or friendly soldiers, then the administration cares about civilian casualties. But in the Vietnam, in the case of Vietnam, uh, when I look at Operation Rolling Thunder in particular, um, you really don't see concern about the civilian casualties, at least inside the administration, and altering the bomb policy around civilian casualties. They're much more worried about friendly casualties there. Okay. Uh, we started out with a uh, undergraduate student question. Uh, we'll end with one. I'm sorry you didn't. Uh, yeah, that was okay. No, thank you. So, uh, two questions. One is uh, the implications of your uh, findings on U.S. military strategy. Um, and then secondly, a question of, uh, if you're right, um, what should the lessons that uh, the media and uh, other alternative analysts of uh, U.S. military policy uh, draw from your conclusions so we have a better understanding how U.S. Uh, strategy is formulated. Great questions to end on. So, um, implications on, on policy and strategy. I think the, the, the implication has, has kind of, it has real-world applications. I'm not completely sure how an administration or how the military would better, would try to, to combat this. Um, However, it does suggest that this mechanism of indirect politicization um, that I sort of glossed over in, in the theory section of the presentation um, make it worse. So military officers, after being overruled or told uh, that subsequent things are very important, may then continue to alter the advice that they give to the civilians um, in order to coincide with domestic political priorities. And so this the cycle may, may exacerbate um, as, as politicians consistently put their domestic political priorities above, um, well, not completely above, but attempt to satisfy both their domestic political problems and the 
military policy. Um, how can we as a public be better informed? Uh, I, I I don't have a lot of theories about um, whether this is even a good or a bad thing. Um, I, I don't have really a normative judgment about this. And so <laughs> is this a problem that we should combat? I'm not sure. Um, Churchill was famously involved in military operations at the operational and tactical levels of war, and he won World War II. Um, he was a great leader, fantastic leader um, during wartime, but you know, consistently overruled military opinions, and towards the end of the war, really, um, really reined in the area offensive, which one would argue was good, because the area offensive over Germany during World War II was generally regarded as an ineffective campaign that hurt a lot of civilians. So, did electoral politics in that fashion um, help or hurt the war effort? I think in many cases, had he stopped it earlier, it would have helped. Um, on the other hand, you have cases like uh, Battle of Fallujah in 2004, where if the military had gone in in September or early October, um, they probably, I mean, speculation, they may, they may have lost as many as 50% less because they gave the insurgents uh, two months to build fortifications and lay booby traps and lay IEDs and um, prepare and flood the city with insurgents. So I, I don't have a normative judgment about whether these these kinds of things are good or bad or whether they require curriculum. I think in some cases it can lead to increased battlefield effectiveness, and I think in other cases it can, it can lead to a decrease in Okay, and on that happy note, uh, the clock has literally struck six, so uh, the rent on the room has expired. It just remains for me to ask you to join me uh, in a round of applause for Carrie Lee and a terrific presentation. Also, if I could make a commercial plug, uh, our next uh, and this uh, special event will be uh, on uh, Friday, October 28th at noon. Victoria Coates, who was Donald Rumsfeld's speechwriter and then ghostwriter, and uh, uh, Senator Ted Cruz's national security advisor, will be giving remarks on democracy promotion and US, recent U.S. foreign policy at Carol Sandler Hall, and lunch will be provided. So uh, if the intellectual uh, nourishment isn't sufficient, uh, sufficient, there'll be food as well. So uh, thank you again, Carrie. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.